Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. By way of introduction, we'll begin with Stanley Hauerwas, a man who needs no introduction here in the Divinity School. He's a theologian, the son of a bricklayer, and the Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law. His wide-ranging work includes not only bioethics, but also the virtues and the narrative character of life in the church. And he's a prolific author whose work is familiar and dear to many attendees here today. Our extramural guest is Carl Elliott, who's a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Bioethics. He is published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times on topics as diverse as the use of pharmaceuticals to pursue the American dream and research scandals. I will say, however, that perhaps the best description that I have found of him is one I found on Twitter last night uh, from Duke's very own Amy Laura Hall, who said that his role in bioethics was analogous to the lead singer of the rock band Rage Against the Machine. Um, I know that he's pleased to be back at Duke as well, which is, of course, the alma mater of his ethical muse, Richard Nixon. So welcome, Dr. Elliott. Thanks for mentioning Nixon. My children actually call this room the Institute for Nixon Studies because of my obsession with Richard Nixon. Yes. But tried to try to put all those things away for the for the session. Good. You moved the bust out of the back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, as we uh, hop into discussion today, I thought we could begin with a hot topic, which is telling the truth. Uh, one of the core commitments of medicine is to tell the truth. And as we diagnose patients and give prognoses and research and so on, yet you have both explored how telling the truth is not always straightforward and often actually quite difficult. So I'm curious if you guys could begin with what is truth telling look like in medicine today and what makes it so difficult? I haven't really been as interested in truth telling as I have been in lying which there's a lot of in medicine, uh, particularly in medical research. A lot of the trouble that I've gotten myself in over the last decade or so has been about medical researchers and pharmaceutical companies failing to be honest with research subjects to their peril. And um, I'm not really sure that it requires a lot of explanation to to understand why that's wrong. I think one of the challenges of truthfulness in physician-patient relations is the increasingly inability of patients' language to offer physicians ways to explain to patients what in hell is wrong with them. So there is linguistic incompatibility between the way a doctor talks to another doctor and the way that physician will talk to the patient. Because how to have a common way of saying to someone that is ill but who cannot comprehend what it is wrong with them is a deep challenge. And in the result, the result is oftentimes physicians tell patients 
diagnoses that the patient can't understand. And that that is, I think, a very deep challenge to the development of modern medicine. Do you think that's right, Colin? Possibly. I'm trying to think of it in the context of both of my parents' recent deaths after fairly extended hospitalizations. And I had a lot of trouble with the way that both of them were treated. It never really had much to do with truthfulness. I never really got the sense that there was anyone who was not being honest with us. And maybe that was because, you know, my father was a doctor and my brother's a doctor and I went to medical school and we could, we could understand fairly well what was being said. Our issues, I think, were much deeper than a failure to understand one another. Dr. Elliott, could you speak more about your work with whistleblowing and the ways that folks do or do not find it difficult to tell the truth um, in, in different contexts and your research on that? Yeah, well, just a little bit of um, background. So um, I'm working on a book uh, about whistleblowing and medical research. And I've been interviewing the sort of largely forgotten people, medical insiders, who exposed research scandals. So Peter Buxton, who exposed the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, Martha Stevens, who exposed the Cincinnati radiation experiments, Mike Wilkins, who exposed abuses at Willowbrook State School, and so on. There are a number of others. And what I was interested in is, you know, the question of, first, why are there so few of these people? Because they're actually very rare. And secondly, what is it about those particular people or the circumstances that they found themselves in that permitted them to speak out about the abuses that patients were being subjected to when everybody else was silent? You know, I'm not actually sure that this really has anything to do with truth telling. Um, the argument I'm making in the book is that it has to do with honor, that uh, honor is a kind of forgotten moral concept that seems obsolete and antiquated now, but still kind of runs very deeply uh, in our culture. And I should, by our, I mean sort of Western, because I'm also talking to New Zealanders and Canadians and Swedes, not just Americans. And um, what struck me, what still continues to strike me about the explanation that I get from whistleblowers when I ask them or try to explore with them in any deep way, why did you do it, is how inadequate their explanation seems. They just don't seem to be able to go very deep. I shouldn't say, maybe that's a bad way to put it. It's not that they can't go very deep, it's that they go to exactly the depth that is necessary and that's it. What they will say are things like, how could I live with myself if I kept quiet? Or how could I look at myself in the mirror? Or what would I say to my children? Which seems to me to be the, the, the language of honor and self-respect, which are moral concepts that, um, you know, I think need 
kind of a more sort of digging through. That's the that's a sort of short version. If I might, I um I was given an honorary degree by the University of Aberdeen, and I was the speaker at graduation, and I had seven minutes to give you. And so I said, I have to make, I want to give you a uh, recommendation that will take you through the rest of your life well if you follow it. This is it. Two words, don't lie. And <laughs> I think, and I said that may sound like a straightforward, but you have to think that lying is such a ready, available way out of many of our everyday decisions. For example, do you really think negative results are as good as positive results in your science? Uh, negative results don't get you on the National uh, Institute of Health bandwagon. Or think about what it means in marriage to tell one another the truth. We fear that because if we tell the truth to one another, then as a matter of fact, we may lose the intimacy that we've achieved to that point. I mean, not lying is a uh, very extraordinary uh, demand. For example, in terms of what we're thinking about, in terms of the training of medical students, when I used to talk to residents in terms of their moral challenge, learning to be a doctor. I would ask them, how, how do you feel when you walk into the room of a patient who is sick and you haven't got the slightest idea of what the hell is wrong with them? And they ask you, oh, doctor, am I going to be okay? And you say, yes. <laughs> and you don't have any idea. But yet, you're told to say yes because you're a placebo. <laughs> <laughs> you tell the patient, no, you're really sick. We don't have the slightest idea what's wrong with you. They get worse. So how you be a truthful person depends so much on the kinds of skills that you have developed in terms of being able to be honest with yourself and one another. I think what, I think what you said at the end is maybe the most important about being honest with yourself. I think it's very easy to lie to yourself. And I think the lies that people tell to one another are often based in lies that people are telling themselves. So, I mean, it's, it's human nature in a, in a way to try to come to terms with the bad things you've done by convincing yourself that they were not as bad as they actually were or that you really had no choice under the circumstances but to do those bad things, or that you really couldn't be blamed for those bad things because of some sort of external circumstance that other people really don't understand. And I think that's the really hard thing, to be able to face up with your own shortcomings and flaws and sins and, and sort of be honest about them with yourself. Self-deception is such a tricky notion because it's not, I'm lying to myself because if you know you're lying to yourself, then 
is not self-deception. So how it is that we lead lives that entail projects that we refuse to spell out exactly because if we spell them out, it would force us to recognize aspects of ourselves we don't want to recognize makes our self-deceptions extraordinarily powerful. It strikes me, Dr. Hauerwas, that in much of your work, you focus on the community that is able to speak truth to one another and then the ways that that ties into identity and formation. And because we're speaking in a medical space, um, and your work has also explored the ways that medical training is one of the few sites in our society, um, as you see it, that is still overtly committed to moral practice and formation. And I know you've even uh, used that to think about how we could improve seminary education, for example. But, but Dr. Elliott, you know, you've experienced medical training yourself, and then your work has, of course, focused on some of kind of the perverse incentives and so on that accompany research or training, um, and generally the seamy underbelly of modern medicine. So I'm curious if you guys could speak to why you've attended to the power of formation or um, incentives within medicine. Well, I mean, I, I can start with that, uh, and it's a, a simple answer, which is I... <laughs> I felt in medical school that I was becoming a terrible human being. <laughs> I felt as if I, by the time I finished, I had become the kind of person that I used to hate, uh, by which I mean uh, hard, uh, jaded, arrogant, entitled, uh, entitled to get something back because I'd been treated so badly. And, um, narcissistic in a way. Uh, I can remember my, my brother uh, was two years behind me in medical school and um, I can remember talking to him when he finished and uh, <laughs> I remember him saying, I wonder how long it'll take me to become a human being again. The fear was never, right? You know, we were just talking about self-deception. I mean, I, I think the the scary part of it for me and maybe for Hal as well, my brother, was that you look around and you're looking at everybody else and they seem just as jaded and bitter and entitled and arrogant as you are, but they don't seem to realize it. Somehow they have gotten into the position where they think this is how I'm supposed to be. To me, that, that was the reason that I sort of jumped off the train and decided I needed to do something else. One of the things when I first began to understand the kind of training you get in medical school, school like being at Georgetown, I could go through the various specialties and watch how the training occurred. The first I began to appreciate how physicians have to learn to see patients. It involves judgments that are particular. And how do you train people to not make everyone the bad dog gladiators the same? Because they're not the same. Patients differ. And how to appreciate and train someone 
to see difference, I think, is a kind of moral training that Aristotle's ethics certainly points one toward. So the training a physician by having them learn to imitate a master, it doesn't mean that they necessarily become good in every other way of their life, but they do learn to be present to ill people, even when they're not sure how to respond or name what's going on, yet they don't abandon the person. Medicine's commitment to be present to the ill in a way that presents all of the considerations other than what they must do to continue to be present to the ill. I understand that's, that sounds too idealistic, but nonetheless, it's a, a resource for helping name for the internal practice of medicine, a way to name the moral commitments that should be there, that oftentimes may not be there. Therefore, I think medicine is one of the last areas in our lives in which a certain account of moral formation that turns people, that should, should make you honorable. I mean, that's a resource that we can hardly not do now. I know that sounds idealistic, but I think it's a possibility. Yeah, very idealistic. I mean, it's good to have aspirations, you know, although, uh, you know, high aspirations just makes the disappointment of the reality all the more crushing. Since we're talking about honor, I'm just thinking of another uh, <laughs> another story that I'm thinking about uh, talking about, writing about in my book of when I started um, started medical school at the Medical University of South Carolina. So I, I went to Davidson College, which has an honor code, and um, it's one of the one of the few places with a with a real honor code. By which I mean um, people take it seriously, and the faculty and the administration actually trust you to take it seriously. During my four years there, I never had uh, an exam in which a professor was looking over my shoulder. All exams were unproctored, or all tests were unproctored. Exams were both unproctored and self-scheduled. You'd just go pick them up, take them to a room, and then turn them back in. No locked doors, nobody checking the library, nothing. Even the businesses in town trusted Davidson students to not to lie or cheat or do anything dishonest. And I can remember um, the first exam I took at medical school. You go in, you show your ID, uh, you're treated as if the moment anybody turns their eyes away from you, you will cheat. Uh, you're berated if you put your pencil down at the wrong time. The aisles were patrolled by people watching to make sure that, um, that you didn't do anything dishonest. And I can remember actually feeling insulted by this. Like, who do they think I am? They think I'm going to cheat on an exam? Well, of course they do. Of course they assume that. That was the assumption. 
The assumption was, unless we watch you, you will cheat and you will be dishonest. And that is the rule of the community. And to me, that says something about the reality of what the profession of medicine is like compared to a kind of idealistic vision of it. I wish it weren't that way. I assume that the reason it is that way is that if the students are not watched, they will cheat. But what does that actually say about the state of medicine, or at least the state of medicine, you know, in Charleston, South Carolina in the 1980s? If you want uh, someone that really explored honor, uh, Carl, I suggest Anthony Trollope. Uh, in uh, 18th century novelists were all fascinated by Tom and what uh, would sustain. And uh, honor, of course, depends on having character that makes one consistent across time. The Trollope would constantly put people into situations in which it would be easy for them to not be honored because to be honored came with the cost. He always maintained for himself the display finding of people being honored. Lawyers were constant uh, exemplification of the problem for being honorable for him. And physicians were also people of honor, but oftentimes also people of power, which physicians are people of power. How to be powerful and honored is a constant problem. I should say, I don't want to idealize the ethic of honor in any way. There's, a, there's some very dark sides to the ethic of honor. Right. Honor, honor killings, response to insults, violence, exactly. Walker Percy's uh, book, Lancelot, is a great sort of exploration of the very dark side of honor. But I do think that sort of properly understood and uncovered, because I think it's something that a lot of us still, still feel, it can be sort of turned and motivated toward very good ends. Who is the most determined in honor society? Today, the United States military. The military is rightly seen to be dependent upon the formation of people that will be honored. What do you think is the, uh, Carl, what do you think, given your account, the dark account of medicine, what do you think could be done to make a difference? It wouldn't be one thing. I think it would be many things. And to be honest, I don't have an answer, but I, I will give you an answer uh, that uh, I got from one of my whistleblowers. Uh, one of the whistleblowers I interviewed, this is a, a guy called Mike Wilkins. He was the physician working at the Willowbrook State School that exposed the abuses there. Not the hepatitis study, the Krugman hepatitis study in particular, but the concentration camp-like conditions that these mentally disabled children were kept in. The most, uh, honestly, the most amazingly humble, gentle guy I've met in a long time. Hated medical school. This is one of the things that I'm finding of, of, the, uh, of the doctor whistleblowers. They, they generally hated medical school. 
he's in his, uh, I think he just actually just turned 80 and uh, only recently stopped practicing. He says the, the problem with medical training is that it reinforces a class system and the big uh, division of the class system is between the doctors and the patients. You're taught that you are superior to your patients. And he doesn't think that that's changed since, since the time he was in, the, in medical school in the early 60s. And um, he says, I think everybody who goes into medicine should start at the bottom. They should start as orderlies, work as licensed practical nurses, as nurses, and then on up. And, and this way, you would learn medicine better, but also you would understand, in a way, what it's like to be at the bottom of that status hierarchy instead of being initiated in this weird way right at the top. That might help. And I don't disagree with him about the class system. You are taught that you are superior to patients. You're also taught that patients are your problems. At least we're, when you're in medical training, in medical school, on the wards, and internship and residency, your patients are your problems. They're a barrier. They are the way that you can screw up and flunk out of medical school or be kicked out of your residency or be berated in some, in some way by the person above you. The difficulty, I think, with medical students is, there, is that there is a, a sort of mixed message. On the one hand, you are told by everybody, including you know, the faculty in the medical school where you've been admitted, that you are the elite, that you're something special, that you are above ordinary human beings because being a doctor is the best thing possible. And yet, you're treated like a kindergartner. I mean, you are treated in a way that <laughs> it genuinely is insulting. Part of this is deserved because you literally know nothing when you go to medical school. You know nothing that's relevant, most of us anyway. And when you start on the wards, you've been taught virtually nothing about how to take care of patients in the first two years of medical school. So there's a sense in which you need to be treated as if you know nothing, but you don't need to be hazed and you don't need to be treated as if you know nothing about anything at all, as if you do not have a conscience, as if you can't think for yourself, as if you have never had a college education before. And it's this, this sort of cognitive dissonance on the one hand between feeling as if you are superior, but being treated as if you're inferior, that sort of goes into the very kind of dysfunctional psychology of medical training. I, I find this very helpful for thinking both of the ideals and as well as the dangers of medical training. But I would also like to draw you both out on how you see yourselves in relation to the field of bioethics more generally. Dr. Elliott, you've written quite a bit on the questions of medical ethics, obviously have won prize-winning books and fellowships and so on. And Dr. Harwas, you are the second most cited author in the anthology on moral medicine and have been involved since the early days of what we would recognize today as bioethics. But at the same time, I don't think anybody in the field would confuse either of you with mainstream uh, bioethics. And so I'm curious why 
do you not fit in with the standard approach or what leads to your dissatisfaction? And then how do you encourage students to take a cockeyed approach to bioethics? I was kind of there at the beginning, which was the famous case that the uh, Shrivers brought about the Down syndrome child born duodenal atresia and how mother not approved of uh, the operation the child died. That began to set off the issues. And Andre Helligers was there. It was part of the source behind it. It was the famous article, you know, how medical ethics saved the life of ethics. Suddenly, ethicists seemed like they had something to do. And um, they had tools such as Franken's ethics in which you could make distinctions between meta-ethics and normative ethics. And then you've got teleological and deontological and physicians suddenly got thinking, oh, you know, if you've got a heart problem, you get a cardiologist. So if you get an ethical problem, you get an ethicist. <laughs> I think that like uh, ethics uh, was some kind of specialty of people who really knew what they were doing if they had the name ethicist somewhere associated with their work. I thought all that was bullshit. <laughs> I wasn't uh, about to uh, reproduce it. Uh, and I thought that the very idea that medicine needed an ethic external to it, I mean, there was question was is internally what kind of formation was happening and would make people able to make judgments about other people's illnesses. So um, what one might do uh, for that. So I was never much taken with trying to be a bioethicist. We had enough problems with the very fact that you tried to think you knew something about ethics in and of itself, I thought was mistaken enough. And so I just stayed away from the profession that there's now such an establishment of medical ethics uh, and bioethics. It's not at all clear to me that that's a good idea. I uh, philosophical and theological issues that need to be raised about that. Carl and I, of course, both of us have been shaped not only by Walker Percy, but by Wittgenstein in ways that makes those kinds of disciplinary developments quite problematic. I can't say I disagree with any of, any of that, and uh, I share a lot of that. Um, sort of suspicion. Uh, you know, I, I never intended to go into bioethics. It was not, I didn't train in it. I, you know, I didn't do a PhD in philosophy because I was interested in bioethics. I did a PhD in philosophy because I thought philosophy might possibly help me figure out what I was supposed to be doing with my life, which didn't seem to be uh, practicing medicine. <laughs> that didn't really seem to be working out so well. 
a lot of people in, in bioethics and even some, even some of the good ones, and there are not many good ones, uh, but some of the better ones in bioethics are doctors who were disillusioned or dissatisfied in some way or alienated by medicine and uh, did a philosophy or a theology or some other kind of humanities degree because they wanted to understand how to do their jobs as doctors better and more thoughtfully and in a way that was more in line with the way they felt medicine should be done rather than the way it was actually being done. I was never one of those people. I went, I went to graduate school in philosophy because I was trying to escape medicine. And then because I had this medical degree, people just assumed that I had something to say about bioethics. And somehow I just sort of found myself in these bioethics centers or medical humanities departments or something like that. My pro I, I have so many problems with the field of bioethics that let me just click them off. Uh, it's very shallow. There is a kind of pretension to moral expertise that uh, rubs me the wrong way. A lot of bioethics has been uh, used to justify terrible things, including uh, abuses by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but the big problem, it seems to me, with bioethics, and this, this has happened, you know, during the period since I started, you know, working in, in um, academia in the early 90s, it's moved into medical schools and academic health centers. And so naturally, as a, you know, as a, a person working in a bioethics center, if your accomplishments and your promotion and tenure requirements and the esteem of your colleagues and everything about your everyday life is dependent on academic medicine, then it's no surprise that you start to think like the people in academic medical centers do. And in general, that's not a good thing. I mean, I don't think that that is a good thing. <laughs> academic medical centers are not paragons of virtue in any sense of the word. And I'm afraid that a lot of uh, what professional bioethics does now, and the reason that it is successful in academic uh, medical centers is because it justifies the things that academic medical centers do. It is a rare thing, almost, uh, I would say, uh, rare to the point of non-existent to find a bioethicist criticizing a practice of an academic health center that pays their salary. And it's just not just because it pays their salary, although that's probably part of it, it's because their entire uh, identity has been built around earning the respect of the people in the academic health center. And the respect is withdrawn if they break ranks with the club. I think one of the um, interesting uh, developments in bioethics is how ethicists become experts. McIntyre makes a fascinating judgment in Act of Virtue that the distinction between fact and value 
that is so prevalent in the discourses around medicine and this claims of bioethics and about medicine is the distinction between facts and values is not epistemologically required, but it is the distinction that legitimates the development of something called the expert who's got their hands on the right facts. Therefore, happiness is the reproduction of those kinds of moves in the quote sciences, which turn out in terms of actual practice with no fact if it has an isolated event of some kind. But that ethicists become experts in a way that reproduces a kind of false epistemological assumptions about knowledges that turn out to be not very helpful for thinking hard about what it is you do when you legitimate another human being interacting in a way that touches other bodies because they allegedly have expertise. Well, thank you. Thank you both so much uh, for this. Thank you.